Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Listen, fool, I need to talk to you about some bet online action. If you're into sports betting, bet online is your best friend. So get to know it. Whether it's live bets during the games or futures of who will win the championship, bet online has all the latest odds, news, information. All your online sports betting needs. Visit the website today, use your mobile device, join and receive your 50% off welcome bonus on your first deposit. So, before the next big game, head on over to Bet Online and start playing today. Bet Online, your online sports book experts. Oh, and another thing I need to talk to you about nicotine. Maybe the greatest drug on earth, okay? The problem with nicotine is that it's gotten a terrible, terrible, terrible stigma that it doesn't deserve. Nicotine in and of itself is fantastic. It gives you appetite control. It gives you metabolic uh, function benefits. It also has huge cognitive benefits. All right? So what do you do if you don't want to smoke, you don't want to vape, you don't want to chew? You turn to Lucy. Amazing lozenges and gum all with a clinical four milligram dose of beautiful nicotine. Now they come in extra strength with 8 and 12 milligrams. Three exclusive and delicious flavors, spearmint, mango, and cool cider. That's what I'm talking about, buddy. Do yourself a favor. Get on board with nicotine. Look past the taboo. Look past the stigma. Mikey likes you listeners. Go to lucy.co and use the promo code Mikey to get 20% off your order of Lucy Slim Pouches all Pure, beautiful nicotine, or any other Lucy product for that matter. That's lucy.co, and use the promo code Mikey at checkout. Also, I have to let you know, this product contains non-tobacco nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Lucy. 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 Lucy Lucy.co, and be sure to use the promo code Mikey. This stuff is amazing. My spoon is magic. That's right, magic spoon. This stuff is so fantastic. Zero grams of sugar, but 13 or 14 grams of protein, that's what I call a combo. Four grams of net carbs, and all of them come with amazing flavors. It's better or as good as your favorite childhood cereal, but it's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. Like I said, it's got 13, 14 grams of protein with only 140 calories. I love Magic Spoon, man. It's the best. I've been trying to turn to different, you know, store-bought protein snacks and protein shakes and everything to kind of kill my sweet tooth when things get out of control. Now I have something even better, and it's Magic Spoon. So go to magicspoon.com slash Mikey, grab your delicious cereal, try it today, and be sure to use our promo code Mikey at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's back with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason... They'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash Mikey and use the promo code Mikey to save $5 off. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. Hey, you know what sucks? Not being able to perform in the bedroom. Seriously, it's really embarrassing. It can be crippling to your manhood. So if things aren't working out, you're not performing the way you want to, why don't you get yourself Viagra, Cialis, the active ingredients in both those drugs, but do it in a non-embarrassing way. You know what I'm talking about. Last thing you want to do is have to deal with a, a doctor, get a prescription, then go to a pharmacy and have to deal with all the funny looks. You're already embarrassed enough. So go to Blue Chew, bluechew.com. It's all done online. You don't have to talk to anybody. Sign up at BlueChew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part, it's all done online. It all comes right to your door, okay? The active ingredients of uh, Cialis and Viagra at a fraction of the cost coming right to your door, I'm telling you, this stuff is the best. Blue Chew really makes your life a lot easier and it's giving back to make sure that you can perform in the way that you want to. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And I got a special deal for you. Try Blue Chew for free. That's right, free when you use the promo code Mikey at checkout 
Just pay $5 shipping. That's BlueChew.com, promo code Mikey, to receive your first month free. And we thank BlueChew for sponsoring this podcast. All right, baby, let's get after it. Legend. Legend on the show today, Doug Brignoli. This is a guy who's been in the fitness industry for like, oh, 50 years. No exaggeration. And he has put a lot of effort into being studious and to really analyzing exercise and resistance training so that you can maximize your training. He's a very smart man. I really enjoyed having him on the show. He does push back on a lot of the things that I fundamentally believe, but that's a good thing. And we have a great conversation about it. And he really enlightens me, and I hope he does the same for you. This is Doug Brignoli. With karate, I'll kick your ass. From here to right over there. Oh, yeah, motherfucker. Gonna kick your fucking dairy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You broke the rules. Now I'm pulling out your cubic head. You motherfucker. You motherfucker. Always, always gets me a little. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Jack. The Tenacious D. Now that I'm on YouTube, oh, welcome everybody to Mikey Likes You. I am Mikey, who likes a lot of stuff. Let me just find a competent place for my guitar. Wouldn't be... <clears throat> wouldn't be such a big deal if i didn't have a giant puppy like a massive when you say puppy most people they think of like a nice cute little thing unthreatening little dog but uh got about a 75 pound puppy so she has puppy energy with a big yoked out moose body and she destroys everything so there's that. Plus, you may have noticed, if you have a discerning ear, that uh, I was a little bit more laid back, a little bit more reserved in my delivery of Karate by Tenacious D, the intro song for now. And uh, we're getting to the point, by the way, where you're going to have to start voting on the new intro song. I like to rifle through them every, every 25 to 50 shows, depending. Uh, initially, I started with... Um, Buenos Tardes by Ween, and I transitioned into Tenacious D. I'm always accepting nominations for intro song, but you may have noticed that I was delivering the song a little softer than usual. That's because my daughter's about 25 feet away. Now, granted, she's got a door between us, so I'm not too concerned but I didn't necessarily want to let go with my pipes and deliver uh, you motherfucker and um, pulling out your pubic hair with my seven-year-old daughter somewhat within earshot. So I do apologize. If you were like, hey, Catherwood, I was expecting a certain level of gusto and you didn't deliver. Well, today you got the like Billie Eilish whisper version um today i'm really excited he will be joining us at some point very soon um really 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 smart really nice guy mr doug brignoli former mr america he has um god he has more experience in the world of physique culture and training and nutrition than i have experience with being alive he is in his 60s. He is jacked. And he has been at this game, the fitness game, since the early 70s. Started as a teenager. And he will join us very soon. Um, in the interim, uh, since we have a couple moments, I, there are a couple topics that I wanted to touch on. Um, and they actually tie into a lot of the things that I wanted to talk about with Doug. Um, last week, we talked a little bit about exercise selection in the episode that I, you know, devoted to figuring out the things that you should and shouldn't focus on, things that are wasting your time, things that are worth your time. And exercise selection was certainly one of them. I talked about complex multi-joint movements being the thing that you should really focus on. And I stand behind that. 
And even though they should be dominant within your protocol, I'm not necessarily saying you shouldn't do other things. And there are situations where certain compound movements just can't be done. If you have a shoulder injury, you're not, you shouldn't be bench pressing. If you have a weak lower back or lower back problems, you shouldn't be deadlifting and squatting. Um, but I do think that they should always be in your mind as something you're, you're adding to your protocol. Um, so I wanted to make that kind of distinction that, yes, I, I stand behind it wholeheartedly that they are the things that you should be focusing on. That doesn't mean that they, they have to be used within a vacuum. And if you can't do those, you shouldn't train at all. Alternatively, they should be dominant. They shouldn't be exclusive. Maybe at first they can be. If for, for an abject beginner, I don't see any problem in focusing on those main six movements that I like to highlight. The vertical push, you know, overhead press, things like that. The uh, horizontal push, bench press, dumbbell bench press. Um, vertical pull, a row. Uh, horiz- excuse me, vertical pull, a pull-up or chin-up. Uh, horizontal pull, a row. And a, a, a knee hinge and a hip hinge, you know, squat movement, deadlift movement, and, um, you know, some type of, of core movement. Um, so, you know, you have your big six. You can focus on just those six. And even if as an advanced lifter, there can be periodization and times when you just focus on those. But they are not something that I'm prescribing to be used exclusively. And there are a handful of other exercises that if, you know, say muscle gain is your main goal, they should be introduced. The compound movements, although they are the most beneficial and they give you the most bang for your buck, they aren't necessarily the best when it comes to pure muscle gain. If you were to analyze them from a biomechanical standpoint, um, it's you can't create a lot of tension and get a good contraction in your quads, the front part of your thigh, when you're squatting. Even though I would say it is the most important lower body exercise you can do, it's not the best for pure muscle gain because it doesn't provide that big of a contraction to the to the quads. It does give you a lot of metabolic benefit. It boosts your fitness and work capacity. It gives you huge hormonal benefits and things like that. So I do think it always has to be done. But things like the sissy squat or a leg, regular leg extension on a machine is actually going to train your quads more. So build the foundation around the big six. And if you have the energy and the training uh, history, you know your, your skill level is to the point that you can add in other things. I do think that there are great exercises. And then you also have to analyze your goal. Um, if pure muscle gain is your is your desire, you know, your, your training protocol and especially your eating is going to be geared differently than someone who needs to lose 150 pounds or an endurance athlete. Um, these are all things that have to be taken into consideration. So um, I just wanted to point out that there is, you know, I, I don't want to sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth but I made such a big deal out of focusing on the big heavy compound movements and then went and put on my Instagram things like the sissy squat and uh, the Jefferson curl, which wouldn't necessarily fall into um, I, any of those categories of the, of the big six that I named. And that's because there are ancillary movements that can become, you know, a big part of your training protocol, but that has to be, done on a case-to-case basis. The big six, the ones that I named, the compound, you know, multi-joint movements, those are something that I think should be applied to to pretty much everyone who's capable of doing them. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I promised you a veritable legend in the industry <laughs> of fitness and physique. And uh, I, I, I'm delivering a man who has over 45 years of not only experience, but high level experience, a, a cutting edge thinker, um, and someone who played an instrumental role in getting me involved in fitness. It's true. Wow. Mr. Doug Brignoli. Thank you very much. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> I can't live up to that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Listen, here's the, here's the deal. You, you probably don't remember this. Actually, I, I guarantee you don't remember this. But I'm going to say 1988, 1989, my Cub Scout troop, not Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts. So I was wow. little. Yeah. Went to Brignoli's Fitness in Pasadena, California, because I grew up in in San Marino. Uh-huh. And um, right there where uh, Jerry's Deli used to be, you know, was, yeah. used to 
before that, right? It's pretty yeah. Yeah. And you sat down my entire Cub Scout troop and talked to us about fitness and the importance of fitness and the difference between aerobic activity and anaerobic activity and showed us your gigantic muscles. And uh, I was, I was transfixed, you know, you know, for a boy wow. that age, especially, you know, we've talked about this before, but like in my era in the eighties, you know, my idea of a man was Schwarzenegger and Stallone. And, and the, so to me, you were, you were this kind of superhuman figure and uh, it was, it was very, very powerful, very meaningful to me. So I don't know wow. if you uh, have any recollection, but uh, that, that definitely was something that stuck with me. I, I do remember that I used to do talks to a lot of schools and groups and things like that. Um, and I really enjoyed that. I trained special Olympics. I don't know if you remember, I trained special Olympics at the gym for seven years. Um, so yeah, I was very involved with the community and, you know, reaching out to people that needed inspiration, I guess. You were a guy who, you know, at a young age got involved in bodybuilding and, you know, I think most people who make the assumption of like, well, a teenager that gets involved in bodybuilding is going to be like the rock. You know, you see these pictures of 13, 14 year old, the rock, and he's like six, one, two twenty, And, uh, but you were, you were a thin person. Um, right. by nature. I, I was trying to compensate for the fact that I was yeah. too skinny. Yeah. <clears throat> what was, I get, was that the general impetus for a young Doug Brignoli to, to even pick up weights was the fact that you were a thin guy. Yeah, I was very thin and, um, and I was in, in, uh, in grade school, seventh grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, right around there. And we had a coach, a PE coach named Mr. Rao, R-O-W-E. And he was a great enthusiast of sports and kids and athletics and all that. And he used to walk with a cane, older, older gentleman by that time, even. And, uh, and so I asked him, I said, I want to, I want to put some muscle on. How do I do that? I want to gain weight is what I said. And my mother, I had asked my mother to help me gain weight. So she was putting all kinds of basically fattening foods, chocolate bars and crackers and all kinds of things. And I was eating all this stuff. I just wasn't gaining any weight, but of course I didn't want to get fat. I just didn't know the difference. Mr. Rao said, well, you don't want to get fat. He says, the only kind of weight worth gaining is muscle weight. And the way you do that is by lifting weights. And to a, you know, a kid in, in seventh grade, I thought exercise was for people who wanted to lose weight. Right. So I didn't understand. He said, oh, no, no. And then he sort of explained it to me. So that's how kind of it started. And, and then I convinced my mom to buy one of those plastic cement-filled barbell dumbbell sets. Uh, and she was wonderfully gracious and let me put, put it in our living room. <laughs> and, uh, and then eventually I moved it to, um, the, what would be considered the breakfast room off the kitchen. And that became my weight room. Uh, and, um, and little by little, I started adding equipment to that barbell, little upright stands. And I connected some springs to the wall so I could lie down on the bench and do tricep pushdowns with springs. And I was literally hooked at, at 14 years old, 13 years old. And was it, I, I would imagine, because for me, it was a little bit later, but it was very similar um, kind of situation. I wasn't like a particularly thin kid, but I did have this general sense of insecurity that I think a lot of, you know, high school, junior high school age boys deal with. And there was something about not only like adding muscle. I mean, of course, that's going to transform your level of confidence and things like that and your your level of self-respect and it was the process it was a process of lifting weights it was it, it was voluntarily doing something really difficult and um seeing being able to really with with great clarity monitor the level of progress and and know that like i did this you know it wasn't a coach it wasn't a teacher it wasn't my parents so there was something that was very directly connected to my level of effort to my level of results and it was so therapeutic. Well, you know, you're exactly right. I think all kids, all boys are insecure. Uh, and we, we try to find an identity. We try to find something about us that makes us, well, better than somebody else, you know, good enough. And, uh, and of course, as kids, we all watch Bruce Lee movies and we all look at comic books and we all, you know, find things that we find, <clears throat> you know, impressive or admirable. And so I started with Shotokan karate. That's where I started. And I would diligently go to my karate class. 
but the fact was I was still super skinny. So it didn't matter that I was learning skills. I, you know, there was no outward sign of masculinity. Um, and so then I started with Mr. Rao and the weight training. And, and, uh, and of course, you know, you get a pump right away. And the muscle pump, you know, gives you a lot of gratification. And by oh, that yes. time... According to Arnold, it's better than coming. Exactly. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> can you which of course, can, my life is? I'm coming all the time. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, which, of course, you know, can be translated two ways. Um, but, but, you know, you get a sort of instant gratification with the pump. You look in the mirror, right away, you look bigger. Um, but I was also someone who really enjoyed the process. I really enjoyed the way exercise felt. And, and that is a difference I've discovered over the years. A lot of people don't like exercise. They do it because of the reward. <clears throat> but they just don't like the process. And I just loved the process. Um, and I was analytical from the very beginning. Like the first time I got up, I was 14 years old. I got up on some parallel bar dip bars. And I thought, wow, this just does not feel right. And upright row, just what is this? Why are my wrists turning sideways? And where's this thing supposed to end? I mean, you know where a curl ends. You know where a pushdown ends. You just don't know where an upright row ends, which of course for me, sort of beg the question is like, what defines a rep? What is the starting point and ending point of a rep and what's actually going on? So I was starting to dissect it from the beginning. I, I really enjoyed the whole process, even the analysis. Yeah, you've gotten so well known in the fitness community for being that analytical mind and for really taking into consideration things like lever points and, and biomechanics. And you've, you know, you've written a whole book devoted to the process uh, to your analytical process and you've kind of isolated these 20 21 exercises that best give you the ability to stretch and contract the muscles the targeted muscles and um i've gained tremendous amounts of knowledge uh from all your teachings and i highly encourage everyone else to do the same well my um, question is yeah go ahead go ahead no i was gonna go say ahead. it was you know I was surprised that everyone didn't ask what I thought were the simply logical questions, which was, what is it? What does a particular muscle do best? What is the one thing it does best? So, you know, even as a teenager, you can look at, let's say, um, a guy doing a bench press or a guy doing a flat dumbbell press or a guy doing a decline or an incline. And in you, for me, the logical question was, they can't all be equal, equally good. Sure. There has to be something that that distinguishes what is closer to ideal and farther from ideal. And um, and and that's deltoid too. It's like, how can this be good for shoulders? But this is also good for shoulders. And yet those are very different. Um, and so there has to be a defining thing, a set of criteria. And turns out there was no such thing. You can easily find principles of aviation. You could easily find, you know, the, the physics of any one thing that would define. I mean, there are engineering classes that tell you, you know, what is, you know, the most stable crane versus the most unstable crane and why. Um, and so there was nothing like that. And it just it just struck me as odd that no one had ever spelled out or even asked the question, how does this exercise compare with that exercise? Right. So I, that's and, what the book's I mean, about. It's, it's been, it's been eye-opening to a lot of people. Um, and I think, look, you asked the question like, well, why has no one ever asked these questions? I think because with bodybuilding and physique uh, training, you know, like a lot of things, you just kind of take for granted that the generation right. before you is right. You know, and when they're it, so it, big and muscular, you assume they know. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and in fairness, you know, the the, gen, the the physiques of the people who were giving you this information oftentimes gave you a you know a lot to substantiate their arguments by you know if someone's right. like lean and muscular is telling me to do something you you want to do it you know well you know again this is just my analytical quirkiness that was at work right and so I would say well you know it's easy to say that let's say Arnold having done incline presses. Um, would be correct in assuming or believing that inclines work the upper chest. Um, and of course, you know, everything looks good on him when he's doing incline presses, including his upper chest. But his upper chest probably also looks really good when he's brushing his teeth. And yet brushing his teeth doesn't build his upper pecs, right? So you can't automatically assume that every exercise a person does contributes equally to the end result. But you can right. pretty much be sure of that 
every exercise that person does, regardless of how actually effective they are, aren't taking away from something else that produced good results. So what you know is that it might've added a little bit, it might've added more, it might've added a lot, didn't take away from, the question is how much did it contribute? And then you just find just in this particular case, the question is, how can a, I'm sorry, how can a muscle pull in a direction where it isn't located? In other words, all muscles must pull toward their origin. If I give you a rope and I tie the other end of the rope to a heavy box and I say, pull the rope, that box is going to move to you. It can't move any, any other direction. Well, muscles are the same way. Muscles always pull their limb toward them, toward their origin, right? right. They can't do anything but that, right? So when you're moving your arms in an inclined direction, you're moving them above the collarbone, but there's no muscle above the collarbone. You're moving it toward your neck or your chin, maybe even your nose, depending on how steep the incline is. And so just logic dictates that the, the highest muscle on your, the highest pectoral fiber on your sternum can't possibly be moving the arm in that direction, but it wants to pull it in a flat bench direction. It is straight across from the shoulder joint. And sure enough, when you look at the anatomy, you see when the arms are stretched out, all of the pectoral fibers are below the shoulder line, the arm line. That means flat and declines are the only appropriate directions of, of, of movement you should be doing to maximally engage the pectoral muscle. Anything else is going to be minimally involving the pectoral muscle. Now, what, what would one do, even if it's, if it's important, maybe it's not even worth, you know, wasting the effort. What would one do to isolate the area kind of on the top, you know, right near the clavicle? Well, you know, if you look at anatomy and of course, <laughs> One of my endorsers, Dr. Human Melamed, who's an orthopedic surgeon, he said, I've never known any non-doctor to know the anatomy as well as Doug. <laughs> I've, I've, I'm just fanatic about the musculoskeletal system. So the pectoralis um, ma major has three components, has a, a sternal part, has a small clavicular part, and has a small costal part on the ribs. It's about 80% on the sternum, about 10% on the clavicle, and about 10% on the, on the, on the ribs. And um, even though when you look at anatomy chart, you can see that those muscles fan, right? They all go to the same endpoint right there on the upper arm bone, but they, they all kind of go like this. So um, when you say, I want to work my upper chest, most people that say that are not looking at an anatomy chart. They're looking at a picture of Franco Colombo, right? right? Or they're looking... And they're saying, wow, look at that shelf. Well, part of that shelf is the, is the, are the fibers that are connected to the sternum. And part of it are, are the parts that are connected to the clavicle. So the, one of the rules, one of the 16 rules that I've come up with is that if you want to know what muscle is involved in a movement, just ask Well, you have to know a little bit about where the insertion is. So if you know that the insertion is on the arm here, you have to say toward what muscle origin is that moving, right? So like when you say I'm doing parallel bar dips for yeah. chest, you go, well, yeah, that's not moving toward the sternum. Mm -hmm. That's not moving. It's kind of moving slightly toward the ribs, but those fibers are diagonally situated, right? And you're not moving in a diagonally direction toward the midline of the body. You're moving straight down, right? So that's why parallel bar dips are not a good pectoral exercise is because you're not following the pathway that that muscle sure. produces, right? So you want to follow the pathway. So someone might look at an anatomy chart and they'll see that when the arms are down, these fibers go up and they go, oh, well, then I've got to move my arms in an upward direction. Well, maybe upward from being down at your side, maybe. But as soon as you lift your arm up, this clavicle shifts like this and the clavicular fibers are not directly across from it. So no, it's not upward from this angle. Right. So if you go, I have a picture in my book of a woman who's very, very lean. She's doing a flat dumbbell press. And you can actually see because she's so lean that her clavicular fibers are participating more in a flat dumbbell press than are the pectoral fibers on the sternum. Mm -hmm. So when you're doing a flat dumbbell press. And I say dumbbell instead of barbell, because full range of motion is one of the other 16 criteria. Right. So if you're doing a bar, you're a long way from contraction. You want to. You want to bring it toward the midline of the body, and dumbbells allow you to do that. 
So when you're doing a flat dumbbell press, you're already moving toward the highest part of the pectoral fibers. But if you look at someone from the side, as they're doing a flat dumbbell press, and you ask yourself, can I see any more pectoral fibers north above that arm line, meaning more toward the head? And can I see more pectoral fibers toward their feet? And the answer is, yes, I can see a whole lot more toward their feet, but I don't see any more toward their head. They're, in other words, they're moving to the smallest percentage of muscle fibers because they're not middle, moving their arms to the middle of where all the pectoral fibers are situated. That would be the middle of the sternum. Well, the sternum is lower than the shoulder. So if you move your arm toward the sternum, you're creating a slight decline movement. That would be the one exercise a person would want to do if they want to move their pectoral insertion toward the majority of their pectoral origins. Okay. And I, I am a big proponent of really analyzing the stretch and the contraction of the muscle when engaging in an exercise. We were just discussing it um, before you came on, you know, that I don't want to sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth because I encourage people to squat. I encourage people to deadlift, especially beginners and lower intermediate level. Um, but neither is something that I could say has provides you great contraction of the targeted muscle. Mm -hmm. And you, you talk extensively about that. And, and, you know, of course you've lit up many chat rooms, especially in the powerlifting world, because you're saying, Hey, you know, the squat and the deadlift aren't necessarily uh, the godfathers of, of strength exercises. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and I totally agree when it comes to, uh, like I said, the stretch and the contraction of said muscles, but do you think that there's still value to, to isolate these muscles by doing sissy squats and, um, doing, you know, uh, one armed, uh, pull downs, you know, which, which you recommend, which are a part of your protocol, but mixing them in with these compound movements for the sake of the hormonal benefits, the sake of the structural benefits and things like well, that. Well, we, we are actually doing a, a seminar with powerlifters in New York uh, in November. So yes, they can be combined. So um, let me be very clear because oftentimes what I say is taken out of context because maybe I didn't cover all the bases. So let me see if I can cover all the bases. So when you do a compound exercise, an exercise that involves multiple muscles, each muscle that's participating in that movement is doing its own thing. It doesn't know or care what other muscles are working simultaneously. So we should ask the question, um, how does the participation of one of these three muscles in this compound exercise compare with that same muscle's participation in an, uh, in an isolated exercise? Is it as good? Is it as productive? Is it as safe as it would be when you're doing an exercise dedicated to just that one muscle and that one joint. And what you would find is not only is it not uh, as productive or as safe for a variety of reasons, either range of motion or early phase loading or alignment or a number of things. Um, as I said, the 16 factors, right? You can say this exercise that's isolated over here qualifies, meets all the 16 criteria. This one right here only qualifies for nine. Right, so you say, oh, well, then it's experiencing less benefit, not no benefit, less benefit as compared with an alternate exercise that meets those 16 criteria. So again, it would not be like saying all isolated exercises are better than all compound exercises. No, no, no. Each muscle and each joint has to be analyzed and say, what would be the best, best way to engage that particular muscle? So that's what I mean when I say, if your objective is to develop the physique, then the, the compound movement or the powerlifting movement is going to contribute less to each of the participating muscles than doing those two or three exercises separately would. Yes. Now, if someone says to me, well, I like powerlifting, I like squatting. Um, are you telling me to stop squatting? No, I'm not saying stop squatting at all. Just understand where it rates in terms of its, let's say, you know, muscular development benefits. And the rating system involves uh, what would be considered an efficiency quotient. In other words, how much weight would have to be used in order to load that muscle with X amount of load, right? So a muscle that's getting 90 pounds of resistance doesn't know whether you're lifting 90 pounds 
or 300 pounds, it only knows what it's getting. So 90% of 100 pounds is 90. 30% of 300 pounds is 90. It's experiencing 90 pounds. It doesn't know what your skeleton is enduring. It doesn't know whether your spine is being compressed. It doesn't know a lot of things. It only cares about the 90 pounds it's getting. Right. So the idea that you would automatically assume that lifting a heavier weight automatically loads the muscle more ignores the fact that there's a lot of physics that's going on that determines the ultimate loading of that muscle. So um, if I can just get a little bit deeper into some physics, you know that a pendulum hanging straight down from a pivot, let's say a, a clock, a pendulum on a clock. If you just left it alone, it would just hang there just like a swing in a park. They would just hang there motionless, right? Sure. Um, and that's because the lever is parallel to gravity, which means that it has a zero moment arm. In other words, there's no difference between the pivot and where that weight is. So as soon as you take that lever arm and you start swinging it away from the neutral position, it wants to go back. And it wants to go back with a certain amount of force. And that amount of force will be less than that amount of force will be less than that amount of force. So when a lever is horizontal, if we're talking about free weights, perpendicular to gravity, right? I call that the T position. It's got the widest moment arm, the greatest difference between the pivot and the weight, okay? So if we know that parallel to gravity is zero and perpendicular to gravity is 100%, now, you would have to know some trigonometry to, to, you know, the exact amount of load for every part in between vertical and horizontal. But I tell people in the book, don't worry about that. Just know that halfway between zero and 100, a 45 degree angle could be considered a 50% active lever. 50% of the load you would get if it was here, right? And of course, everything in between. So when you look at someone doing a squat, and you understand that the lower leg is the limb that's being operated by the quadricep. And you see that it goes from the vertical position when you're standing, tilts forward about 30 degrees in the fully descended position. You realize you're not even at that 45 degree, 50% active mark. And you certainly know we're near the horizontal position, right? Which means you're only getting about 30% of the load you're using on the quads. So then you sense that you can do this fairly easily. So you put more weight on the bar. What you're not aware of is the reason why you can do it fairly easily is because you're getting a 70% reduction of the load on the quads. You're getting a discount, right? So you can compensate for that discount by adding more weight to the bar, but you're still operating with the same percentage of active, the same percentage of loading. So Rather than fixing that lower leg like you would on a sissy squad, rather than letting that lower leg get horizontal or at least closer to horizontal, you use the same inefficient lower leg lever to load the quadriceps, but just by adding a whole bunch more weight to your spine, which compresses your spine. So number one, it's inefficient at loading the quadriceps. And then someone might say, yeah, but it's also supposed to be working the glutes. Well, it is. And the glute muscle is operating the, the femur, the upper leg bone. And when you get in the descendant position, you are in that fully active position, right? But the lower leg is connected to it. And the lower leg is actually what is delivering the load to that femur. And that's doubling under it. And so it's reducing its moment arm. It's no different than if you're doing flat dumbbell press and you bring your arms in versus bringing your arms out. You either elongating this lever or you're shortening this lever shortening it. by the position of this secondary lever. The same thing happens when you squat. The lower leg is the secondary lever of the femur, which is being loaded for the sake of the gluteus. So, so you say, well, you know, I'm getting a very active femur angle. That's true. But you're getting half the length that you would get if you could attach the resistance to the very end of the femur, which is what happens when you do a multi-hip machine and you put that roller right behind your knee and you push down on it, you can get twice the efficiency. In other words, you can get the same amount of gluteus load with half the weight or twice the amount of gluteus load with as much weight with that. as you would use okay. in the squat. And of course, you're doing that with nothing on your spine, no spinal compression. So that's why I say if you're looking at 
just the mechanics. And there's a neurological thing here involved too. But if you're just looking at the mechanical thing, you can load the, the quadricep better, more with less weight than you can with using, let's say, a sissy squat than you can with a regular squat. And you can load the gluteus better, more with less weight without the risk on the spine, just by doing that exercise instead of the squat. But there's a neurological component too. I hate to you know, go too long, but the, there's a thing called reciprocal inhibition. And that means that opposing muscles can't contract at the same time. When you're doing curls, your, bicep, your tricep shuts off because your bicep is loaded. And this is the way our body coordinates us. So we're not, not you know, contracting you know, simultaneously in different directions at the same time, right? Our body knows to relax this muscle so it doesn't interfere with the function of that muscle. Right. When you load the glutes, it's a hip extension muscle. So the hip flexor, which are the opposite, shuts off. One of the five hip flexors is the rectus femoris, which is the only part of the quadricep that crosses the two joints. The other three parts of the quadricep only cross the knee. But this one, which is that center part of the quadricep, crosses both joints, so it gets shuts off neurologically. So while you're doing a barbell squat with the objective to get maximum stimulation on the quadricep, you should know that you're having to use about three times more weight to get the same amount of quadricep load, as, quadricep load as you would get by doing a better, more mechanically efficient exercise. And part of the quadricep is also shutting off. And, you know, if you want to be a power lifter, that's okay. You can straighten your power lifting with isolated moves too. But if your objective is not power lifting, it's muscle building. You should say, what's the easiest, most efficient way to do that? Right. And it, it all uh, makes incredibly good sense. And, and look, your, your body at your age is proof positive that this is, you know, there's a lot of proof in the pudding. My question then becomes for someone who's right now, not, I mean, we're not talking about the, the, the greatly overweight, the, the person who the average person, 10 to 15 pounds, 20 pounds overweight. And they're like, you know what, I want to do it. This summer is it. Isn't there, you know, to mix in with these much more physically efficient movements, um, the the metabolic neurological benefits that you've talked about with understanding, at least getting competent with the movement patterns of things that are multi-joint and complex? Well, what I always say is uh, a bodyweight squat is fantastic. Mm-hmm. A bodyweight squat is, is typically not intended to build optimum quadricep development. Sure. Right? So you're doing a, a bodyweight squat. And by the way, if you do a jump squat, better still. Right, so you're getting athleticism, you're getting cardiovascular stimulation, you're getting some load to these muscles, even though it might not be the most efficient loading, you're still getting something absolutely. Um, and for someone who wants to lose weight, I, I tell them, you know, if you do squats three or four times a week with body weight or maybe just a little bit of additional weight, right. it will change your life, it will make your life much better. You will lose weight, you'll get stronger, you'll have better cardiovascular function, all these things. The problem is, once you start adding weight, a lot of weight, because you want your quadriceps to grow, then you start have to asking some other questions. One, one of which is I'm paying a higher price on my spine and also on energy cost. Sure. Am I getting the same amount of benefit or commensurate benefit to the muscles that are involved? And that's when you start to say, well, no, you'd actually get more benefit on these muscles if you did that. And then someone says, well, yeah, but what about the fact that when you squat, you get an increase of testosterone production and growth hormone production. And I say, okay, so yes, that's true, but it's not universally true. In other words, a person who squats, if I put 100 pounds on my back and squat, I'm not going to get a hormonal increase. Why? Because the hormonal increase comes from the energy demand. When the energy demand becomes so high that it becomes, well, let's just say stimulating, right? What it actually is, is it becomes a crisis, an energy crisis. So a guy who's squatting, let's say, 315 pounds for 20 reps will nearly pass out after that, right? We've all seen people vomit after yeah. that, right? So what's happening is there's an enormous draw on glucose, right? If you pass out or feel lightheaded, it's because you've got low blood sugar after that set. It's an enormous amount of energy demand. And... And then people think, oh, then the switch to turn the testosterone production has just gone on. Well, yes and no. What has actually happened is 
this energy crisis has now started to produce cortisol. Sure. Right? It's a catabolic hormone. And your body is sensing that crisis, and it tries to shore up that crisis. In other words, try to mitigate the cortisol production by increasing its testosterone production. So the question people should be asking is, okay, I've heard that you get a testosterone increase in squats. How much of an increase do I get? Is it significant? And is it enough to not only compensate for the cortisol, but exceed it? Sure. And what we find is that the testosterone level does increase, but not a lot. In fact, arguably, not as much as the cortisol requires. So you've got to go, you've got to have enough testosterone production to meet the catabolic hormone and then go significantly beyond that in order for you to get what would be considered steroid-like effect. So our, number one, let me just, let me just finish and just say, it's doubtful that it does that, number one, um, because again, your body doesn't want to build muscle. It just wants to prevent dying. <laughs> yeah. So it's logical that it, you would get enough testosterone production to offset the catabolic so that you can maintain equilibrium, which is what your body mostly wants. But what was the cost to doing that? You just compressed your spine with 315 pounds. You have, you know, you possibly risk herniating a disc. You know, if you do this over and over and over again, I mean, a spine did not evolve to hold 315 pounds of downward weight twice a week for months and years at a time. So there's bound to be some skeletal consequence to your effort to get what could be what you think is a cat, an anabolic effect, when in reality it might just be nothing more than compensating for the catabolic effect. In our remaining moments, um, you you're one of the few people I'm have the luxury of talking to that has so many years of experience in bodybuilding and fitness, and it's 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 a world that is so fickle; it changes its mind, <laughs> you know, on on a, on, a, yeah. on a dime. In your experience, what are some of the things that you've seen, some of the trends that you've seen come and go that you are happy to see go? And what are some of the things that are coming back into vogue that you're just so um, so excited to see becoming popular again? Well, I will say that that weightlifting is less fickle than nutrition. Nutrition is all over the map, even maybe now more than ever, right? We have people that say vegan and people that say carnivore, right? So... And each one, you know, has evidence, right? The thing I like about biomechanics is you can measure it. You can actually take scales and you can actually compare, right? It's quantifiable. You can actually measure how much load on this axis versus that one. So that's what I like. You can't be fickle with physics. It is what it is. Um, I will say that there has always been, um, if you want to call it a trend, I think it's just more of a characteristic of, of being human, which is that we tend to want to perform when we're in the gym. We tend to want to exhibit in the gym. So when you see a guy putting a thousand pounds on the leg press, you know, that's not going to build your quadricep. In fact, I saw one video where a guy turned his leg the other direction. Yes. Right. So, I mean, that's is a huge, huge risk potential to going heavy, heavy, heavy. And yet now in the world of Instagram, and social media, now when everyone wants to post what would be considered heroic things, right, there's probably more of a tendency than ever to want to lift super, super, super heavy. Um, and what I would just say to people is look, just understand that the amount of load a muscle gets is only partly related to the weight you're lifting. The other part of it is the angle of the limb that's moving the weight, the angle of the machine, like a 45 degree angle is not a vertical like press, right? So you're already getting a reduction because it's a 45 degree angle. You wouldn't be able to lift nearly as much if it was a, if it was a straight up and down sure. like press. So there's all kinds of factors that determine. And, and I would just say, you know, we, as, as, as males, we, as we need to say, look, quit trying to find validation, quit trying to find likes. I mean, be the best you can work out as intelligently as you can preserve your spine, preserve your joints. You can get, as much loading as you can with these other lifts, and you'll get as much muscle growth from it logically because the muscle only knows load. It responds to load. It doesn't respond to skeletal strain. So um, if you want to build a great physique and you want to preserve your joints and spine, you can do that by understanding the physics component of this. Um, and I think now there is a little bit of a trend toward, you know, um, I'd like to think maybe I'm contributing to it a little bit, but there is a little bit of a trend towards 
smarter training toward understanding, you know, that there is an ideal direction of resistance for a muscle. There is a an ideal direction of anatomic motion. There is an ideal an ideal joint motion. Uh, and understanding what those are, and my book is endorsed by a lot of ten PhDs. One of whom is a is a paleoanthropologist. So we talk all the time about you know what a skeleton, what a human skeleton was designed and meant to do and what it wasn't. I mean, they're essentially forensic specialists. They can tell you by looking at the design of a joint what it was made to do and not do. Well, I, I genuinely appreciate you taking the time out of your day to talk to me. And uh, everyone can find Doug and information about him at DougBrignoli.com as well, as well as at DougBrignoli on Instagram. Uh, I love to peruse, especially your old pictures, you know, from the late seventies, early eighties. That's a, it's a, it, there's just something incredibly, um, I don't want to say it, there's a longing there, but it, it just seemed like there was a more innocent and pure kind of aspect to the idea of fitness. I think because there was no Instagram, you know? Yeah. We, we used to, we used to love going to the newsstand to get the magazine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Thank you, Doug. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. That. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure being here. Well, Magnolia, there's another episode of Mikey Likes You. What'd you think? Well, I think it was good, but I am a kid. I don't really listen to those kind of podcasts. I like kiddie ones, but I think it's good. Thank you. You don't think it's great, though. What could I do to make it great? Well, I think lots of grown-ups listen to it, so it shouldn't have any adjustments. It's really good for grown-ups, but not for kids. Okay. Well, I appreciate your input, and uh, this is how I sign off. I say, in this crazy mixed-up world that makes you think that nobody cares, I do. So, do you care? Yes. All right. Bye. Love you guys. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.